Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, for the past 11 years, the crew of Town Hall Seattle's Short Stories Live series has presented a celebration of storytelling they call A Rogue's Christmas. Curator Jean Sherrard chooses seasonally appropriate readings. It's always a festive, thought-provoking, and slightly devious gathering, just the thing to keep Christmas weird in Seattle. This year's readings include The Fruitcake Theory and Christmas in Qatar by Calvin Trillin, You Better Not Cry by Augustine Burroughs, Christmas Every Day by William Dean Howells, A Christmas Spectacle by Robert Benchley, Three Wise Guys by Sandra Cisneros, and Christmas Cracker by Jeanette Winterson. Taproot Theater hosted the event on December 10th. Sonia Harris recorded the proceedings. The readers include Paul Dorpat, Jean Sherrard, Kurt Beatty, Bill Ontiveros, and Marianne Owen. From all of us at Speakers Forum, best wishes for happy holidays and a healthy and prosperous 2018. Well, our opening canticle is from Calvin Trillin, uh, who's the beloved American humorist, journalist, novel, food writer, and poet. Now, uh, he's also a notorious fruitcake hater. <laughs> and he's invaded against fruitcakes for decades. And here's an example from a little essay he calls The Fruitcake Theory. There's a family in Michigan I once read about that brings out an antique fruitcake every Christmas. A fruitcake that for some reason was not eaten at Christmas dinner in 1895 <laughs> and has symbolized the holiday ever since. They put it on the table not as a dessert, but as something somewhere between an icon and a centerpiece. A very sensible way to use fruitcake. You mean you think that fruitcake would be dangerous to eat, you ask? Well, you wouldn't eat an antique. My uncle Herbert used to chew on an old sideboard now and then, but we always considered that odd behavior. <laughs> no, there's nothing dangerous about fruitcakes as long as people send them along without eating them. If people ever started eating them, I suppose there might be need for federal legislation. Well, how about people who buy fruitcakes by themselves? Well, now you mention it, if nobody in the history of the United States has ever bought a fruitcake for himself, people have bought turnips for themselves. People have bought any number of Brussels sprouts for themselves. But no one has ever bought a fruitcake for himself. That does tell you a little something about fruitcakes. Well, otherwise, and I have to confess, I, I am a lover of fruitcakes. Are there any fruitcake lovers here? Other than being a hater of fruitcakes, Trillin's a fine fellow. <laughs> and now we're going to hear a poem by Calvin Trillin. Uh, and so I'm going to introduce Seattle's historian without portfolio, author of innumerable books on Seattle history. And for 35 years, I know this because I've spent the last 10 working with him, the writer of the Seattle Times Sunday column, Seattle Now and Then, son of Reverend Theodore Dorpat, Paul Dorpat. Truth is, I don't know how to pronounce it. Gene, you want to explain how to pronounce that? 
I say Quetar, but he says that's wrong. Like guitar, but Qatar. Okay. I know you had a much subtler uh, pronunciation than that, but I'll accept this one because you probably think we're talking to the hoi polloi here, so we're okay. All right. This is divided into three verses and uh, three choruses. I will sing the choruses and read the verses. Verse 1. The shopping starts and every store's a zoo. I'm frantic, too. I haven't got a clue of what to get for Dad, who's got no hobby, or why Aunt Jane, who's shaped like Kohlrabi, wants frilly sweater sets, or where I'll find a tie. My loud-mouthed Uncle Jack won't mind. A shopper's told it's vital he prevails. Prosperity depends on Christmas sales. Can't stop to talk, I say. No time. Can't halt. Economy could fail. Would be my fault. That's verse one. Chorus. To be sung. Sing along if you can. I'd like to spend next Christmas in Quetor. No, I didn't pronounce it right, did I? <laughs> I think it's a guitar, isn't it? It's close enough. Well, give it to, I want to get it right, and somebody may be recording this, you know? <laughs> I'd like to spend next Christmas in guitar or someplace else that Santa won't find handy. Guitar will do, although Lord knows it's sandy. I need to get to someplace pretty far. I'd like to spend next Christmas in Qatar. Now you can applaud. <laughs> and that's the work of an amateur. Remember that, please. So have compassion. Next verse, second of three. Young cousin Ned, his presence on his knees says Christmas wrappings are a waste of trees. Dad's staring, vaguely puzzled at his gift. And Uncle Jack, to give us all a lift, now tells a Polish joke he heard at work. So Ned calls Jack a bigot and a jerk. <laughs> Aunt Jane, who knows that's true, breaks down and cries. Then Mom comes out to help and burns the pies. Of course, Jack hates the tie. He'll take it back. That's fair, because I hate my Uncle Jack. <laughs> Little moral lesson there. Uh, chorus, uh, verse two, oh, chorus two rather, not verse. And this one we sing again. Again, sing along if you like. I'd like to spend next Christmas in Tibet. Or any place where folks cannot remember that there is something special in December. To bits about as far as you can get, I'd like to spend next Christmas in Tibet. I don't think I did that one very well, but I'm not going to redo it. Don't worry about it. Uh, the last verse which precedes the last chorus. Verse, mom's turkey is a patriotic riddle. 
It's red and white, plus bluish in the middle. <laughs> the blues because the oven heat's not stable. The reds from ketchup dad snuck to the table. Dad says he loves the eyeglass stand from me, unless a sock rack's what it's meant to be. A free-range turkey is best, Ned says. It's pure. This hippie stuff, Jack says, I can't endure. They say goodbye, thank God, it's been a strain. At least Jack's tie has got a ketchup stain. <laughs> now, there's some problems with that verse, and I'd like to discuss it with Trillin, or with you, but we don't have time. We'll move on. And last is the chorus, the last chorus and the end of the poem or the, uh, the song or whatever it is. Uh, chorus, okay. I'd like to spend next Christmas in Rangoon or any place where Christmas is as noisy as Buddhist holidays might be in Boise. <laughs> I long to hear their bingles smoothly croon I'm dreaming of a Christmas in Rangoon. I was trying to sound like uh, Bing Crosby there. You probably noticed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We're almost to the end now. Who's next, Gene? I am. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. There's four more lines. And I'm not going to go to them unless you apologize. <laughs> <laughs> or someplace you won't hear the Christmas story. And reindeer something eaten catch a Tory. I know things can't go on the way they are. I'd like to spend next Christmas in... Qatar. Qatar. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, I don't know if you heard, but Gene's up next. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. <laughs> well, next up, we have a story from Augustine Burroughs. And he's a screenwriter, a memoirist, an essayist, and he dropped out of school after sixth grade and then went off and played until he got his GED at 17, and then proceeded to become a rather amazing writer. Uh, his remarkable body work plows the fertile fields of his own life and unearths, oh, a crop of dark hilarity. No, that's too much. Um, he mines the depths of his own life and, and comes up with black gold. How about that? Well, our first story tonight is excerpted from his memoir, You Better Not Cry. When I walked innocently into the kitchen, my grandmother clapped her hands together, then patted her thighs. Come here, precious, and sit on my lap. I was still technically small enough to be able to fit on a lap, but in a matter of months, I would be banned from laps as I would shoot up almost a whole foot and weigh nearly as much as a big dog. Now, what's this business about referring to Santa as, and she whispered the name, Jesus. 
I just looked at her and blinked. You know it's wrong for you to make fun of Jesus, don't you? I bristled at the mere suggestion, felt my small ears grow warm. I certainly did know this, and furthermore, I wasn't making fun. I know that, I said. I would never say anything hateful about Jesus. That's why I'm so happy he's here. My grandmother studied me, her thin, lined lips puckering around a cigarette that wasn't there. Now, honey, when you say you're so happy he's here, you mean here, don't you? And she placed her hand upon her blouse. No, Carolyn, I said, calling by her first name as all the grandchildren did. I mean, I'm, I'm glad he's here in the house, out there in the living room next to the tree where Jack stuck him. You saw, you were there. My grandmother was now flustered. Jack, she said, give me that. And she nodded to the drink in his hand. She meant business, so he took a step over and passed it to her. She grabbed the glass from his hand and took a deep swallow, then handed it back. That's when she said to me, honey, do you really think that big red stuff Santa we brought you is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? <laughs> the room fell eerily silent all of a sudden, and everybody stared at me, waiting for my answer. It was the silliest question in the world, the answer so obvious that I was alerted to a possible trick. I craned my neck around to look at my father, my mother, Jack, all of whom were looking at me expectantly. Well, I said carefully, as though taking my first step across a frozen pond, listening for the crack of ice, I know that he's Santa. And my grandmother smiled, pleased with my answer, and patted me on the head. But he's also Jesus, I added. <laughs> and I felt her stiffen beneath my legs. Margaret, Carolyn said, glowering at my mother, what does he mean? My mother stepped over to the sink and ran the faucet over her cigarette, tossed it into the trash, and immediately lit another. <laughs> I'm not sure what he means at all, Carolyn, she replied, a calm smile attached to her face. Honey, why do you say Jesus and Santa are the same? How so? So this is how it came to pass that I got my first lesson in Christian theology. Front row center on my grandmother's lap. I learned that what I had believed all my life was not only terribly wrong, but deeply sinful and disrespectful. In fact, I could likely burn in hell for all eternity for my error. Okay, Jesus was real. Jesus was God's only son as surely as I was my mother's. He lived in the sky, not absurdly at the North Pole above Canada. <laughs> and he invented everything, including Eskimos and goats. And Pop-Tarts, I asked? No, my grandmother replied, not Pop-Tarts. She continued with the lesson. Jesus was the Holy Father, or at least his son. Which, I asked. Well, I told you, she said, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Then who's God, I asked. Well, Jesus is God, she replied. But you said Jesus was the Son of God, just as surely as I'm the son of my mother. My mother cleared her throat and everybody turned to face her. She asked, can't I interest anyone in some cheese and crackers? <laughs> she winked like she was trying to be pretty, a pretty television star, except it was just a muscle spasm. Everybody turned away from her. 
But the interruption had given my grandmother her escape hatch. She changed the subject, and I still didn't understand how Jesus could be God and the Son of God at the same time. Santa Claus, she explained, did not live in the sky. He flew through it once a year on a sleigh powered by reindeer. He lived at the North Pole with Mrs. Claus and some little people who made toys for him. You mean midget slaves, I asked. My grandmother sucked in her ear. Goodness gracious, no, I most certainly do not mean midget slaves. Where did you ever learn to combine such words? These are little leprechauns he has up there with him. My grandfather blasted in. Oh, now, hell, Caroline, just don't go twisting the boy back up in knots all over again now that you finally got him straightened out. They ain't leprechauns, son. They're elves. Leprechauns are those little drunk bastards from Ireland. Carolyn let out a little yelp. G.J. Robeson, I should wash your mouth out with soap. You know better than to use such language in front of a child. I told my grandmother, it's okay. We say much worse things here. <laughs> Her face grew dark. You do? Uh -huh. Jack chuckled into his drink, and my grandmother moved on. So once a year, Santa delivered presents to all the good boys and girls all over the world. My grandparents had brought a life-size stuffed Santa, not life-size Jesus. As my grandmother said, nobody knows for sure how tall Jesus was anyway, so he could hardly be life-size, even if he was Jesus, <laughs> which he is not, son, which he most certainly is not. I was more confused than ever. So Christmas is Jesus' own birthday? My grandmother said that it was. I told her how in stores sometimes you saw pictures of Jesus, but mostly you saw Santa. On television you saw cartoons and programs with both of them, and that's why I figured Jesus brings presents to all the poor, foreign, and crippled children, and Santa brings presents to the regular children like me. <laughs> well, that's what I thought in the beginning anyway. But then I heard this song called, Here Comes Santa Claus, and it goes, hang your stockings and say your prayers, because Santa Claus comes tonight. And I realized, say your prayers means they are the same person. It's just that most of the year, Jesus is naked, except for his little rag and his thorn hat, and then on Christmas, he puts on his good red suit. <laughs> My grandmother stared at me in disbelief. And then she glanced up at my mother as if to say, this is all you're doing. <laughs> you could just about see those words right there in her eyes. But my mother didn't catch the look because she was struggling to open a can of tuna at the counter. The opener kept sliding off the lid and banging against the formica countertop. Frustrated, she finally tossed aside the opener and began stabbing at the lid with a fork until Jack gently placed his hand onto her wrist and smiled at her. I knew my grandmother thought I was dumb as a sock, but somehow this had made perfect sense to me. It wasn't like I actually sat down and figured the whole thing out, but my beliefs had evolved over time, one piece of false information layered on top of another until I came to my incorrect and extremely sinful view of Christmas. <laughs> Darkly, I thought of all the wordy, bossy letters I had mailed to Jesus. long lists of products that I wanted and where they could be purchased. 
I even lied to him once and said, my brother says he doesn't want anything and I can have whatever ration you were going to give him, so can I have an above ground pool? You weren't supposed to lie. And I had lied to the very man who made up the rule about not lying. I could not even think about how furious this letter must, these letters must have made him. He's, he's busy building goats and rocks and air, and I'm pestering him and lying. Jesus, I realize, must just hate me. Sitting on my grandmother's lap as she explained that Jesus and Santa were two entirely different people with very different careers, I felt something drain out of me. Joy was bleeding away, being replaced by a kind of cottony confusion and a disappointment that seemed to have a physical weight like stones. What else did I believe that was wrong? Once my grandmother was convinced that I was clear on exactly who was standing beside the tree, she allowed me to jump off her lap and run out to see him. I heard her say to my parents, what a funny, funny child, as I left the room. It was two days before Christmas. My parents and grandparents sat in the kitchen around the table drinking Singapore slings and snacking on appetizers my mother had extracted from cans. My big brother was safely stored away in his bedroom doing the unimaginable. I found myself alone in the living room with a twinkling Christmas tree and Santa, formerly Jesus, standing right next to it. I dragged one of the chairs from the dining room table over to the tree and climbed up on the seat. Standing, I was now eye to eye with Santa. The sparkling blue eyes were so clear and bright that I was entranced. They looked like real eyes, taken out of a real person and put inside the doll. It was amazing, mesmerizing. And the beard and the, the lips and just his whole face, it was all so real. Standing now with my face just inches from the stuffed Santa, I was trembling with emotion. Did it even matter whether he was Jesus or Santa when one thing was certain, he was all mine? I leaned forward and kissed him on the cheek. His waxed skin felt warm and soft, not hard and cold like plastic, but silky, like a candle. I took a sniff. He even smelled like a candle. I leaned forward again, and this time, I kissed Santa on the lips. A startling, nearly electric sensation shot through me, and I quickly looked over my shoulder to make sure nobody was watching. Well, I knew that Jesus was watching. Carolyn said he saw everything, but I also knew it didn't matter what Jesus thought since I was already going to burn in hell for all of time. <laughs> Somehow I understood that what I was doing was incredibly wrong, but I was safe. The grown-ups were still in the kitchen. I could hear them laughing. My grandmother's high-pitched, delighted squeal, Oh, you don't mean it! I kissed Santa again, and this time I stuck my tongue out and swiped it across his cheek. Not only did Santa smell like a delicious candle, he tasted like one, too. My heart was pounding. At any moment, my grandmother or my father could poke their head out from the kitchen doorway and see me, and I'd be in trouble. Just one more taste, I thought, and I leaned forward once again. With Santa's lips in my mouth, I bit down. I bit down hard. And his lips came right off in my mouth. <laughs> Shocked and unsure of what to do now that I had Santa's lips entirely in my mouth, instinct took over and I started to chew. 
I chewed the lips, and they dissolved almost to nothing. They were, I realized happily, exactly like one of my favorite candies, wax soda bottles filled with liquid. I moved to the right, where his plump red cheek presented an impossibly tempting round knob. I bit it clean off his face, leaving a gaping hole with what appeared to be styrofoam beneath. I chewed and swallowed. I bit off his chin, and, and then I went for his ear. But it was hard plastic and resisted my teeth, so I settled for a little bit of neck. His beautiful, true eyes, I opened wide, curled back my lips, and bit into the ridge of his brow. I bit off his nose. Why, Margaret, you can't possibly mean that. My grandmother shrieked from the other room before bursting into peals of laughter. Oh, but that's just the most precious thing I've ever heard in all my life. And it was this, the sound of my grandmother's laughter that made me pull away from Santa and look at him again with fresh, clean eyes. Carefully, silently, I stepped down from the chair and carried it back to the dining room table. Even from across the room, I could see the carnage that was Santa's face. I disfigured him hideously. I felt sure that even Jesus, with his love for the maimed, would turn away. Santa now looked like his sleigh had crashed on a roof, his face slamming hard into the brick edge of a fireplace chimney. I devastated the life-size Santa. I was going to get in a lot of trouble for this. But then, could I maybe hide what I had done? And I had an idea, quietly. I padded back to Santa and placed my arms on his legs. I turned him counterclockwise so that instead of standing beside the tree and looking out into the room, waving at everybody who passed, he was facing the tree, and his raised arm made him appear as though he was going to smack the tree, knock it over. Or, I realized dreadfully, he looked like he was about to mess with my mother's special decorations, her nut mouse, her corncob friends. Still, it was better. And when one of them came into the room and made a move to turn him around, I, would, I could act like a baby and fuss, but I like him better this way. He looks more real. Don't turn him around. Leave him alone. Don't look. <laughs> Unfortunately, things never progressed that far. Just a moment later, my mother and Carolyn strolled out of the kitchen and into the living room. I held my breath and prepared for them, the same way you would prepare for a cold wave that's about to hit you on the beach. What on earth? My grandmother gasped. My mother was staring at my chest. Honey, what is that mess all over your shirt? I looked down and saw bits of fleshy wax, chewed white hairs, tiny shreds of lip all down my shirt. My mother lowered herself onto her knees and began to inspect my shirt, brushing the curious crumbs into her open hand and examining them. My grandmother, I knew without being able to see, was standing before Santa. Her complete silence told me she had seen Santa's face. <laughs> my face was hot, and I knew it was bright red. Why wouldn't Carolyn say anything? Well, the mangled face had shocked her mute. It had been more awful than I'd imagined. I might have to go right to hell tonight. And then finally she did speak. Margaret, put him into the Cadillac. We're going to have to drive to the hospital and get his stomach pumped. I absolutely detested having my arms and legs strapped to the table, but the nurse told me it's the only way. My mother stood at the back of the room chewing on her fingernails, but why? Why? 
It wasn't like I could answer her, at least not until they removed the thick plastic tube they'd snaked into my mouth, down my throat, and into my stomach. It was as though modern medicine itself was trying desperately to reverse what I had done and save Christmas. I was terrified, humiliated, and extreme physical discomfort and confused. On top of this, the only way I could make the room vanish was to close my eyes, but every time I did, I saw the ruined face of Santa staring back at me with his questioning, kind eyes. Why did you do this to me? I got you the ID bracelet last year, the two-tone, just like you wanted. I knew for a fact that I would never receive another Christmas present. In the recovery room, I thought about all the items on my wish list. The TI calculator, the saltwater aquarium with real sharks, the platform shoes, none of it would be mine. For the rest of my life, I would be on Santa's naughty list. Right there at the very top, mine was the one house he could mark off his list with a black permanent marker. Uh, the next story is by William Dean Howells, who was born in 1837 and lived until 1920. He was a novelist, literary critic, essayist, um, and co close friend of Mark Twain, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, Henry James, and they, is the nickname for William Dean Howells was the Dean of American Letters. It was hilarious in the 19th century. <laughs> great fun. So reading for us this evening, we have um, Act Theater's uh, Artistic Director Emeritus, Director and Curator of the program we're a part of, Short Stories Live, actor, writer, the Dean of Seattle Theater, Kurt Beatty. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Gene. Um, just a little preface. Um, I lived for a, a while uh, in the Connecticut River Valley in the midst of the five colleges. Some of you may know that area. And there was a restaurant there called Christmases. And its theme was Christmas 365 days of the year. <laughs> and this is true. Faculty search committees would do, do these exhausting interviews with prospective faculty members at Smith College and Mount Holyoke and places like that. And if they didn't care for the candidate, they would take them for their post-interview dinner to Christmases. <laughs> Imagine that in August, the hallucinatory effect of going to a place where the waiters were dressed up like Dickens characters. Anyway. Christmas Every Day by William Dean Howells. The little girl came into her papa's study, as she always did Saturday morning before breakfast, and asked for a story. He tried to beg off that morning, for he is very busy, but she would not let him. So he began. Well, once there was a little pig. She stopped him at the word. She said she had heard little pig stories till she was perfectly sick of them. 
Well, what kind of story shall I tell then? About Christmas. It's getting to be the season. Well, her papa roused himself. Then I'll tell you about the little girl that wanted it Christmas every day in the year. How would you like that? First rate, said the little girl. And she nestled into comfortable shape in his lap, ready for listening. Very well, then, this little pig. Oh, what are you pounding me for? Because you said little pig instead of little girl. I should like to know what's the difference between a little pig and a little girl that wanted it Christmas every day. Papa, the little girl said warningly. At this, her papa began to tell the story. Once there was a little girl who liked Christmas so much that she wanted it to be Christmas every day of the year. And as soon as Thanksgiving was over, she began to send postcards to the old Christmas fairy to ask if she mightn't have it. But the old fairy never answered, and after a while, the little girl found out that the fairy wouldn't notice anything but real letters sealed outside with a monogram, or your initial anyway. So then, she began to send letters. And just the day before Christmas, she got a letter from the fairy saying she might have it Christmas every day for a year. And then they would see about having it longer. The little girl was excited already, preparing for the old-fashioned once-a-year Christmas that was coming the next day. So she resolved to keep the fairy's promise to herself and surprise everybody with it as it kept coming true. But then it slipped out of her mind altogether. She had a splendid Christmas. She went to bed early so as to let Santa Claus fill the stockings, and in the morning she was up, the first of anybody, and found hers all lumpy with packages of candy and oranges and grapes and rubber balls and all kinds of small presents. Then she waited until the rest of the family was up, and she burst into the library to look at the large presents laid out on the library table. Books and boxes of stationery and dolls and little stoves and dozens of handkerchiefs and inkstands and skates and photograph frames and boxes of watercolors and dolls' houses and the big Christmas tree lighted and standing in the middle. She had a splendid Christmas all day. She ate so much candy that she did not want any breakfast. And the whole forenoon, the presents kept pouring in that had not been delivered the night before. And she went round giving the presents she had got for other people and came home and ate turkey and cranberry for dinner and plum pudding and nuts and raisins and oranges and then went out and coasted and came in with a stomachache crying. And her papa said he would see if his house was turned into that sort of fool's paradise another year. And they had a light supper, and pretty early, everybody went to bed cross. The little girl slept very heavily and very late. But she was wakened at last by the other children dancing around her bed with their stockings full of presents in their hands. Christmas, 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 they all shouted. Nonsense, it was Christmas yesterday, said the little girl, rubbing her eyes sleepily. Her brothers and sisters just laughed. We don't know about that. It's, it's Christmas today anyway. You come into the library and see. Then all at once it flashed on the little girl that the fairy was keeping her promise. 
and her year of Christmases was beginning. She was dreadfully sleepy, but she sprang up and darted into the library, and there it was again, books and boxes of stationery and dolls and so on. There was the Christmas tree blazing away and the family picking out their presents and her father looking perfectly puzzled and her mother ready to cry. I'm sure I don't see how I'm going to dispose of all these things, said her mother. And her father said it seemed to him that they had had something just like it the day before, but he supposed he must have dreamed it. This struck the little girl as the best kind of a joke. And so she ate so much candy she didn't want any breakfast and went around carrying presents and had turkey and cranberry for dinner and then went out and coasted and came in with a stomach ache, crying. Now the next day, it was the same thing over again, but everybody getting crosser. And at the end of a week's time, so many people had lost their tempers that you could pick up lost tempers anywhere. <laughs> they perfectly strewed the ground. Even when people tried to recover their tempers, they usually got somebody else's, and it made the most dreadful mix. The little girl began to get frightened, keeping the secret all to herself. She wanted to tell her mother, but she didn't dare to, and she was ashamed to ask the fairy to take back her gift. It, it seemed ungrateful and ill-bred. So it went on and on, and it was Christmas on St. Valentine's Day and Washington's birthday, just the same as any day, and it didn't skip even the 1st of April, though everything was counterfeit that day. That was <laughs> some little relief. After a while, turkeys got to be awful scarce, <laughs> selling for about $1,000 a piece. They got to passing off almost anything for turkeys, even half-grown hummingbirds. And cranberries, well, they asked a diamond apiece for cranberries. All the woods and orchards were cut down for Christmas trees. After a while, they had to make Christmas trees out of rags. But there were plenty of rags because people got so poor buying presents for one another that they couldn't get any new clothes and they just wore their old ones to tatters. They got so poor that everybody had to go to the poorhouse except for the, the confectioners and the storekeepers and the booksellers. And they all got so rich and proud that they would hardly wait upon a person when he came to buy. It was perfectly shameful. After it had gone on for about three or four months, the little girl, whenever she came into the room in the morning and saw those great, ugly, lumpy stockings dangling at the fireplace and the disgusting presents around everywhere, used to sit down and burst out crying. In six months, she was perfectly exhausted. She couldn't even cry anymore. And now, it was the 4th of July. On the 4th of July, the first boy in the United States woke up and found that his firecrackers and toy pistol and $2 collection of fireworks were nothing but sugar and candy painted up to look like fireworks. Before 10 o'clock, every boy in the United States discovered that his July 4th things had turned into Christmas things, and he was mad. The 4th of July orations all turned into Christmas carols. And when anybody tried to read the Declaration of Independence, instead of saying, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary, he was sure to sing, God rest ye merry gentlemen. <laughs> oh, God, it was perfectly awful. About the beginning of October, the little girl took to sitting down on dolls whenever she found them. She hated the sight of them. And by Thanksgiving, she just slammed her presents across the room. 
By that time, people didn't carry presents around nicely anymore. They flung them over the fence or through the window. And instead of taking great pains to write, for dear papa or mama or brother or sister, they used to write, take it, you horrid old thing. <laughs> and then go and bang it against the front door. Nearly everybody had built barns to hold their presents. But pretty soon the barns overflowed. And then they used to let them lie out in the rain or anywhere. Sometimes the police used to come and tell them to shovel their presents off the sidewalk or they would arrest them. Before Christmas came, it had leaked out who had caused all these Christmases. The little girl had suffered so much that she had talked about it in her sleep. And after that, hardly anybody would play with her. Because if it had not been for her greediness, it wouldn't have happened. And now, when it came Thanksgiving, and she wanted them to go to church and have turkey and show their gratitude, they said that all the turkeys had been eaten for her old Christmas dinners, and if she would stop the Christmases, they would see about the gratitude. <laughs> and the very next day, the little girl began sending letters to the Christmas fairy and then telegrams to stop it. But it didn't do any good. And then she got to calling at the fairy's house, but the girl that came to the door always said, not at home, or engaged, or something like that. And so it went on till it came to the old once-a-year Christmas. The little girl fell asleep, and when she woke up in the morning, she found it was all nothing but a dream, suggested the little girl. No, indeed, said her papa. It was all every bit true. What? What did she find out then? Why, that it wasn't Christmas at last and wasn't ever going to be anymore. Now it's time for breakfast. The little girl held her papa fast around the neck. You shan't go if you're going to leave it so. How do you want it left? Christmas, once a year. All right, said her papa, and he went on again. Well, with no Christmas ever again, there was the greatest rejoicing all over the country. People met together everywhere and kissed and cried for joy. Carts went around and gathered up all the candy and raisins and nuts and dumped them into the river. And it made the fish perfectly sick. And the whole United States, as far out as Alaska, was one blaze of bonfires where the children were burning up their presents of all kinds. They had the greatest time. The little girl went to thank the old fairy because she had stopped being Christmas. And she said she hoped the fairy would keep her promise and see that Christmas never, never came again. Then the fairy frowned and said that now the little girl was behaving just as greedily as ever, and she better look out. This made the little girl think it all over carefully again. And she said that she would be willing to have it Christmas about once in a thousand years. And then she said a hundred. And then she said ten. And at last, she got down to one. Then the fairy said that was the good old way that it pleased people ever since Christmas began. And she was agreed. Then the little girl said, what are your shoes made of? And the fairy said, leather. And the little girl said, bargain's done forever. And skipped off and hippity-hopped the whole way home. She was so glad. How will that do? Asked the papa. 
First rate, said the little girl, but she hated to have the story stop and was rather sober. However, her mama put her head in at the door and asked her papa, are you never coming to breakfast? What have you been telling that child? Oh, just a tale with a moral. The little girl caught him around the neck again. We know. Don't you tell what, Papa? Don't you tell what? <laughs> Time for a little Robert Benchley. Now, he lived between 1887 and 1945. And when, um, let's see, when... He was my age, he'd been dead for four years. <laughs> so he's best known for his deliciously funny contributions to The New Yorker. Uh, and he wrote this next little gem which captures the lunacy uh, of a Sunday school pageant in which mishaps, miscues, and memory lapses abound. So let's bring back Kurt Beatty to read this to us. Thanks. <clears throat> A Christmas Spectacle by Robert Benchley for use in Christmas Eve entertainments in the vestry. At the opening of the entertainment, the superintendent will step into the footlights, recover his balance <laughs> apologetically, and say, boys and girls of the intermediate department, friends and parents, I suppose you all know why we are here tonight. At this point, the audience will titter apprehensively. Mrs. Drury and her class of little girls have been working very hard to make this entertainment a success. And I am sure that everyone here tonight is going to have what I overheard one of my boys the other day calling some good time. <laughs> Indulgent laughter from the little boys. <laughs> and may I add before the curtain goes up that immediately after the entertainment we want you all to file into the Christian Endeavor Room where there will be a Christmas tree with all the fixins, as the boys say. Shrill whistling from the little boys and immoderate applause from everyone. <laughs> there will then be a wait of 25 minutes while sounds of hammering and dropping may be heard from behind the curtains. The Boys Club Orchestra will render the Poet and Peasant Overture four times in succession, each time differently. <laughs> At last, one side of the curtains will be drawn back. The other will catch on something and have to be released by hand. Someone will whisper loudly, put out the lights. Following which the entire house will be plunged into darkness. Amid catcalls from the little boys, the footlights will at last go on disclosing. The windows in the rear of the vestry rather ineffectively concealed by a group of small fir trees on standards, one of which has already fallen over, leaving exposed a corner of the map of Palestine and the list of gold star classes for November. In the center of the stage is a larger tree, undecorated, while at the extreme left, 
invisible to everyone in the audience, except those sitting at the extreme right, is an imitation fireplace leaning against the wall. 25 seconds too early, little Flora Rochester will prance out from the wings, uttering the first shrill notes of a song, and will have to be grabbed by eager hands and pulled back. <laughs> 24 seconds later, the piano will begin The Return of the Reindeer, with a powerful accent on the first note of each bar, and Flora Rochester, Lillian McNulty, Gertrude Hamilton, and Martha Ristor will swirl on, dressed in white, and advance heavily into the footlights, which will go out. <laughs> there will then be an interlude while Mr. Neff, the sexton, adjusts the connection during which the four little girls stand undecided whether to brave it out or to cry. As a compromise, they giggle and are herded back into the wings by Mrs. Drury amid applause. While the lights go on again, the applause becomes deafening, and as Mr. Neff walks triumphantly away, the little boys in the audience will whistle, there she goes, there she goes, all dressed up in her Sunday clothes. The return of the reindeer will be started again, and the showgirls will reappear, this time more gingerly and somewhat dispirited. They will, however, sing the following to the music of the ballet pizzicato from Sylvia. We he greet you, we he greet you, on this Christmas Eve so fine. We he greet you, we he greet you, and we wish you a good time. They will then turn towards the tree, and Flora Rochester will advance, hanging a silver star on one of the branches, meanwhile reciting a verse, the only distinguish distinguishable words of which are I am faith so strong and pure. At the conclusion of her recitation, the star will fall off. <laughs> Lillian McNulty will then step forward and hang her star on a branch, reading her lines in clear tones. And I am hope, the virtue great, my gift to Christmas now I make, that children and grown-ups may hope today that tomorrow will be a merry Christmas day. The hanging of the third star will be consummate, or will be consummated by Gertrude Hamilton, who will get as far as sweet charity I bring to place upon the tree, at which point the strain will become too great and she will forget the remainder. <laughs> After several, several frantic glances towards the wings, from which Mrs. Drury is sending out whispered messages to the effect that the next line begins, my message bright, Gertrude will disappear. <laughs> crying softly. <laughs> After the morale of the cast has been in some measure restored by the pianist, who, with great presence of mind, will play a few bars of, will there be any, be any stars in my crown to cover up Gertrude's exit, Martha Rist will unleash a rope of silver tinsel from the foot of the tree and stringing it out over the boughs as she skips around in a circle will say with great assurance, round and round the tree I go, through the holly and the snow, bringing love and Christmas cheer through the happy year to come. At this point, there will be a great commotion and jangling of sleigh bells offstage, and Mr. Creamer, rather poorly disguised as Santa Claus, will emerge from the opening in the imitation fireplace. A great popular demonstration for Mr. Creamer will follow. He will then advance to the footlights and rubbing his pillow and ducking his knees to denote joviality will say thickly through his false beard, 
<laughs> well, 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 what have we here? A lot of bad little boys and girls who aren't going to get any Christmas presents this year? <laughs> Nervous laughter from the little boys and girls. <laughs> Let me see, let me see. I have a note here from Dr. Whidden. Let's see what it says. Reads from a paper on which there is obviously nothing written. If you and the young people of the intermediate department will come into the Christian Endeavor Room, I think we may have a little surprise for you. Ho, 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 ho. Well, 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 what do you suppose it can be? Cries of, I know, I know from sophisticated ones in the audience. Maybe it is a bottle of castor oil. Raucous cheers from the little boys and elaborately simulated disgust on the part of the little girls. Well, anyway, suppose we go out and see. Now, if Miss Liftnagel will oblige us with a little march on the piano, we will all form in a single line. At this point, there will ensue a stampede towards the Christian Endeavor Room in which chairs will be broken, decorations demolished, and the protesting Mr. Creamer badly hurt. <laughs> this will bring to a close the first part of the entertainment. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kurt. Born in 1954, Sandra Cisneros is best known for her brilliant coming-of-age novel, The House on Mango Street. And all of her writings draw from her life uh, as the daughter of immigrants. She said that much of her youth was spent with her family in constant migration between Mexico and the United States. And that this gave her a sense that she was always straddling two countries, but not belonging in either culture. Those collisions have inspired and illuminated an extraordinary body of work. And here to read her splendid and moving story, The Three Wise Guys, is the legendary actor, writer, producer, stagehand, Bill Ontiveros. Thanks a lot. I was looking around for my glasses, I couldn't find him. <laughs> now I found him. All right. The Three Wise Guys. The big box came marked. Do not open till Xmas. But the mama said, not until the day of the three kings. Not until Dios los Reyes, the 6th of January, do you hear? That's what the mama said exactly. Only she said it all in Spanish. Because in Mexico, where she was raised, it is custom for boys and girls to receive their presents on January 6th and not Christmas. Even though they were living on the Texas side of the river now, not until January 6th. Yesterday, the mama had risen in the dark, same as always, to reheat the coffee in a tin saucepan and warm the breakfast tortillas. <coughs> the papa got up, coughing and 
spitting up the night, complaining how the evening before the buzzing of the chicharas insects kept him from sleeping. By the time the mama had the house smelling of oatmeal and cinnamon, the papa would be gone to the fields, the sun already tangled in the trees, and the ukaras, black and white birds, screeching their rubbery screech cry. The boy Ruben and the girl Rosalinda would have to be shaken awake for school. The mama would give the baby Gilberto his bottle, and then she would go back to sleep before getting up again to the chores that were always waiting. This is how the world had been. But today, the big box had arrived. When the boy Ruben and the girl Rosalinda came home from school, it was already sitting in the living room, in the front room, in the front of the television set that no longer worked. Who had put it there? Where had it come from? A box covered with red paper and green Christmas trees and a card on the top that simply said, Merry Christmas to the Gonzalez family. Frank, Earl, Dwight, and Dwight Travis. P.S. Do not open till Xmas. That's all. Two times the mama was made to come into the living room, first to explain to the children and later to the father how the brothers Travis had arrived in the blue pickup and how they had taken all three of those big men to lift the box out of the truck and bring it inside and, and how she had had to stand there and, and say, thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you, over and over again because those, those are the only words that she knew in English. Then the brothers Travis had nodded as well. They, the way they always did when they came and they brought boxes of clothes or, or the turkey each November or the canned ham on Easter. Ever since the children had begun to earn high grades at the school where Dwight Travis was principal. But this year, the Christmas box was bigger than usual. What could be in a box so big? The boy Ruben and the girl Rosalina begged all afternoon to be allowed to open it. And this is when the mama had said, the 6th of January, the day of the three kings, not a day sooner. It seemed the weeks stretched themselves wider and wider since the arrival of the big box. The mama got used to sweeping around it because it was so heavy, it's hard for her to push into the corner. But since the television no longer worked, ever since the afternoon that the children had poured iced tea through the little grates in the back, <laughs> it, it really didn't matter if the box obstructed the views. Visitors came inside the house, were told and told again the stories of how the big box had arrived. And then each was made to guess what was inside. It was the comadre Elodia who suggested over coffee one afternoon that the big box held a portable washing machine that could be rolled away when not in use, the kind that she's seen in her Sears robot catalog. The mama said she hoped so because the ringer washer that she had used for the last 10 years had finally gotten tired and quit. These past few weeks, she had had to boil all the clothes in a big pot she used for cooking. 
the Christmas tamales. Yes. She had hoped the big box was a portable washing machine. A washing machine, even a portable one, would be good. But the neighbor man, Gaetano, said, What foolishness, comadre! Can't you see the box is too small to hold a washing machine? Even a portable one? Most likely, God has heard your prayers and sent a new color TV. With a good antenna, you could catch the Mexican soap operas, the neighbor man said. You could distract yourselves with the complicated troubles of the rich and give thanks to God for the blessed simplicity of your poverty. <laughs> a new TV would surely be the answers to all your miseries. Each night, when the papa came home from the fields, he would spread newspapers on the cot in the living room where the boy Ruben and the girl Rosalina slept and sit facing the big box in the center of the room. Each night he imagined the box held something different. The day before, yesterday, he guessed a new record player. Yesterday, an ice chest filled with beer. <laughs> Today, the papa sat with his bottle of beer fanning himself with a magazine and said in a voice as much as a plea as a prophecy, air conditioner. <laughs> but the boy Ruben and the girl Rosalina were sure the big box was filled with toys. They'd even punctured it in the corner with a pencil when their mother wasn't looking and she was busy cooking but they could only see nothing but blackness. Only the baby Gilberto remained uninterested in the contents of the big box and seemed more interested every day and more fascinated with the exterior of the box rather than the interior. One afternoon, he tore off a fistful of paper, which he was chewing, when his mother swooped him up with one arm, rushed him into the kitchen sink, and forced him to swallow handfuls of lukewarm water in case the red dye of the wrapping paper might be poisonous. When Christmas Eve finally came, the Gonzalez family put on their clothes and went to midnight mass. And when they came home, the house smelled of tamales and atole, a warm drink, and everyone was allowed to open one present before going to sleep. But the big box was to remain untouched until the 6th of January. On New Year's Eve, the house was filled with people, related some, some not, coming in, out. Friends of the papa came with bottles. The mama set out a bowl of grapes to count off the New Year's. The young children did not sleep in the living room cot as they normally did, but in the living room, the living room was crowded with fat-fannied ladies and fat-bellied stomachs sashaying to the accordion music of the midget twins from McAllen. <laughs> Instead, the children fell asleep on a lump of handbags and crumpled suit jackets on top of the mama and papa's bed dreaming of the contents of the big box. Finally, the 5th of January, 
And the boy Ruben and the girl Rosalinda could hardly sleep, and all night long they whispered last-minute wishes. The boy thought perhaps if the box held a bicycle, he would be the first to ride it. Because since he was the oldest, this made his sister cry. Until the mama had to yell from her bedroom on the other side of the plastic curtains, be quiet, or I'm going to give each one of you the stick which sounds worse in Spanish than it does in English. <laughs> then, no one said anything. And after a long time, long after they heard the mama's piped wheezing and the papa's pipe snoring, the children closed their eyes and remembered nothing. The papa was already in the bathroom, copping up the, the night before when his throat was clearing up, and then the Eucharist began their clownish chirping. The boy Ruben shook his sister. The mama was frying potatoes and beans for breakfast, nodded permission for the box to be opened. <laughs> With a kitchen knife, the boy Ruben care cut carefully along the edge of the top. The girl Rosalinda tore the Christmas wrappings with her fingernails. The papa and the mama lifted the cardboard flaps and everyone peered inside to see what it was the brothers Travis had brought them on Christmas, had brought them on the day of the three kings. There were layers of bald newspapers packed on top. And when these had been cleared away, the boy Ruben looked inside. The girl Rosalinda looked inside. The papa and the mama looked. And this is what they saw. The complete Britannica Junior Encyclopedia. <laughs> 24 volumes in red imitation leather with gold embossed letters beginning with volume one. Arbel, and ending with volume 24, Yel Zin. <laughs> the girl Rosalina let out a sad cry, as if her hair was going to be cut. The boy Rubon pulled out volume 6, Bidem. There were many pictures and many words but there were many more words than pictures. The papa flipped through volume 22, but because he could not read English words, simply put the book back and grunted, eh, what can I do with these? No one said anything. And after, shortly after, the screen door slammed. Only the mama knew what to do with the contents of the big box. She withdrew volumes six, seven, and eight, and marched off to the dinette set in the kitchen, placed two on top of Rosalinda's chair so that she could better reach the table, and put one underneath the plant stand that danced. When the boy and the girl returned from school that day, they found the books stacked into squat pillars against one living room wall and a board placed on top. On this were arranged several plastic doilies and framed family pictures. The rest of the volumes, the baby Gilberto was playing with. He had already 
rubbing his sore gums against the corners of volume 14. <laughs> the girl, Rosalinda, grew interested in the books, and, and she took out her colored pencils and painted blue on the eyelids of the illustrations of the women, and with red pencil dipped in spit, she, she painted their lips and fingernails red, red. After a couple of days, when the pictures of the women had all been colored in this manner, she began to cut out some of the prettier pictures and paste them on loose leaf paper. Only one volume suffered from being exposed to the rain when the papa improvised a, a hat during a, a sudden shower. He forgot it on the hood of the car, and when he drove off, uh, when the children came home from school, they set it on the porch to dry. But the pages puffed up so, became so fat, the book was impossible to close. Only the boy, Ruben, refused to touch the books. And for several days, he avoided the principal because he didn't know what to say in case Mr. Travis was to ask him how he was enjoying the Christmas present. On the Saturday after New Year's, the mama and the papa went to town for groceries and left the boy in charge of watching his sister and baby brother. The girl, Rosalinda, was stacking books into a spiral staircase and making her dolls descend them in, in a very fancy manner. Perhaps the boy, Ruben, would have not bothered to open the volume left on the kitchen table if he had not seen his mother wedge her namesake corsage in its pages. And on the page where the mama's carnation lay pressed between two pieces of Kleenex was a picture of a dog in a spaceship. First dog in space, the caption read. The boy turned to another page and read where cashews came from, and then about the man who invented the guillotine, and then about Bengal tigers, and, and, and about clouds, and all afternoon the boy read. And even when the mama and the papa came home, even after the sunset, until the mama said, time to sleep, and put the light out. In their bed, on the other side of the plastic curtain, the mama and the papa slept. Across from them in the crib slept the baby Gilberto. The girl Rosalinda slept on her end of the cot. But the boy Ruben watched the night sky turn from violet to blue to gray and then from gray to blue to violet once again. Now the last story tonight is by one of our favorite writers uh, and it will be performed by one of our favorite actors. Jeanette Witterson found great acclaim with, uh, and many of you may know this book, that, which was adapted by, I think, by the BBC into a, uh, a television series. Um, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. 
And then she came out a while later with Sexing the Cherry. Her most recent collection of short stories only came out last Christmas. So it's almost exactly a year since they were released. And it's, they were, they're called Christmas Days, in which she, she tells, uh, she's collected together a dozen stories that she's written over the years around this time of year for friends and fans. And with each story, she includes a recipe. I, I highly recommend it. It's absolutely, it's delicious in a number of ways. Um, but um, as a kind of benediction, let me read from her epilogue to this book of short stories. At Christmas, I think about the Christmas story and all the Christmas stories since. As a writer, I know that we get along badly without space in our lives for imagination and reflection. Religious festivals were designed to be time outside of time. Time where ordinary time was subject to significant time, what we remember and what we invent. So light a candle to the dead and light a candle to miracles, however unlikely, and pray that you recognize yours and light a candle to the living, the world of friendship and family that means so much and light a candle to the future, that it may happen and not be swallowed up by darkness, and light a candle to love, lucky love. Her story, Christmas Cracker, is uh, one of my favorites in this collection. And by the way, in Britain, a Christmas Cracker is, many of you may know, it's a, it's a decorated cardboard tube and which you two people take hold of each end and, and pull it apart, and in the middle there pops out bonbons and treats and a special prize. And uh, here to read this little marble for us is an actor who's a Seattle institution, who's graced our stages for many years, the remarkable Marianne Owen. Christmas Cracker by Jeanette Winterson. Christmas Eve at the Cracker Factory. Boxes labeled trumpets, drums, stars, robins, and snowmen were stacked on either side of the long tables where the crackers were assembled. Sheets of gold cardboard were piled against the cutting machines. Waterfalls of red streamers ran down the walls. The spitting, snapping, banging, firing, pistol shot strips that made the crackers crack were safely in tubes on the shelves. Three giant vats of the Alibaba kind marked hats, Jokes and balloons sat under the funnels that automatically topped them up as more and more crackers were filled, packed, and dispatched. The cracker factory operated all year round, but at Christmas time, everybody worked harder to fulfill the orders. Cheap crackers, economy crackers, family packs, deluxe boxes, sets for children, sets for grown-ups, and some boxes marked adult because they contained very tiny briefs. Most, <laughs> most of the crackers had long since been dispatched to stores and from stores to tables as everyone made ready for Christmas Day. But there was one cracker left to be made the very last, the very special, the giant 
charity Christmas cracker, long as a crocodile, fat as a pudding, an enormous golden tube lying on its side, waiting to be stuffed tight as a sausage. But for now, the factory is empty because it's early morning. The bus is just arriving at the gates, and Bill and Fred and Amy and Belle are coming in, special shift, cheerful because it's Christmas now, and they'll have a drink when they're done. The factory is empty. Or is it? The dog is still asleep in a dream of warm tissue paper where he crept last night, cold and wet, because somebody left open a small window and he's only a small dog. In he crept under the red safety light that shone on the gold card beneath the paper angels. He rolled on his back to get dry and ate a marzipan donkey, bad for his teeth, but what can you do, and fell asleep. In they come, neon lights, radio on, and before the dog can say woof, a golden tunnel opens right before his brown eyes and a pair of firm, spade-like hands shoves all the tissue paper and all the dog right inside one end of the cracker and seals it with a plastic lid. <laughs> he can still see the other end. He buries his nose deeper, the hair on his ears twitching as an avalanche of chocolates crashes round his head, followed by an army of teddy bears, an arsenal of pop guns, a barrage of balloons, beads like hailstones, a string of yo-yos, a peal of whistles, a masked ball of false noses and beards, a plague of clockwork mice, and a huddle of evil-looking finger puppets dressed in black. Somebody says, Make it go with the explosive, then. This one has to go with a bang. A fuse rod of gunpowdery stuff is poked past the dog's nose, sneeze, and past his tail, twitch, and out through a hole in the end. The dog thinks of all those circus animals fired out of cannons or the ones dropped by parachute behind enemy lines. He thinks of Laika, the Soviet dog shot into space. <laughs> never to come down. And he thinks of the star dogs, Canis Major and Minor, tracking the dark fields above, glittering guardians of their rougher kind below. Perhaps he's going to join them. Sky set, a new burned star, Canis Fugit, the flying dog. But he doesn't want to be a flying dog. He wants all four paws on the ground. Too late. They're tying the ribbon at both ends round the giant charity Christmas cracker. He feels himself being lifted up and carried out like a canine Cleopatra in a roll of carpet. And there he is on a gilded barge. No, it's the back of a battered truck driving towards a large hotel with a green-coated doorman at the door and a white Christmas tree behind the door in a chandeliered lobby. The dog and his cracker are carried in by specially chosen elves on the minimum wage to the wonderment and applause of all. This is the children's charity party. Rich parents have paid a lot so that their children can help children in need without having to meet any of them. <laughs> the dog 
can hear announcements being made, special prizes, and the best prize of all is for the one who wins the cracker. <sighs> the dog is worried about what will happen when they find him wrapped inside. He isn't anyone's idea of a free gift, not anyone's idea of a gift at all. He's a stray. He knows no one will want him. He lives in the park and drinks from the fountain. He came with the fair when he was a puppy and ran round the rides in his crisscrossed mongrel colors until one day the fair packed up and the caravans pulled away one by one and he went to sleep for a bit because he didn't know what was happening and when he woke up, everyone had gone. He ran sniffing around after them at first, following the scent of diesel and hot dogs, but his paws were slower than their wheels and though he ran and ran till his pads were raw, at nighttime, he had to give up, and limping and frightened through the dark and noise, he found his way back to the park. He was glad of the rustle of the trees and the soft leaves. Sometimes people feed him sandwiches, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they try to catch him. He knows the sound of the van, and he runs down the street where he can slither under a gate until they've gone. Sometimes. A human being sleeps in the park and makes a fuss of him, but the humans move on. You can't rely on people. He knows that. Last night was very cold. He was out scavenging for food. The kebab man had gone back to Turkey for Christmas. The dog likes kebabs. He sniffed a bit round the bins, but the streets have been cleaned for Christmas. As he trotted down the road, keeping to the wall, he saw a window ajar, and a red light inside. It looked warm. The rain had turned to sleet. But now, what will happen when they find him in the cracker? He can hear a lot of noise. He'll keep quiet. The hotel ballroom is crammed with children waving raffle tickets. It's time for the prizes to be given away. Dolls, games, toy guitars, remote co control cars. There's a man in a spangly jacket with a microphone. He's on the stage, and he wants the children to sing jingle bells. Then it's time. The big one, the cracker. The elves push it on stage. What's the winning number? Yes, it's... Nine, nine, nine. Two children rush forward, a fat boy in a red Elvis suit and a slim girl in a fake fur coat. Has there been a mistake? There are two winning tickets. The children glare at each other and take up combat positions on either side of the cracker. The room fills with feral energy as the kids in the room take sides. Pull, pull, pull! The fat boy wraps his fat hands round one end, and the slim girl digs her heels in and just holds on like she's seen her mother do in the sails. But then, <laughs> a pale, quiet boy comes forward and gives the master of ceremonies his ticket. He's got 9992. The master of ceremonies scratches his wig. Whatever is in this bumper, giant, gigantically exciting cracker, you'll just have to share. The children in the ballroom, boo! 
Sharing is for suckers, says the slim girl. It's Christmas, says the master of ceremonies, as though repeating the obvious will make the unexpected happen. The pale, quiet boy stands back while the boy in the red suit turns redder than his suit as he pulls and pulls at his end of the cracker. The girl throws her whole body weight on top of the cracker to stop her new enemy, the fat boy, winning the bang. The pale, quiet boy standing in the middle holding his ticket wonders why he can see a paw beginning to poke through the rip. Bang! There it goes, like somebody split the atom, and up in the air is a mushroom cloud made of chocolate and yo-yos and false noses and finger puppets, and for a second, it hangs in perfect space. Then, as the contents of the cracker scatter over the ballroom, it's every child for himself, fighting over silver coins and plastic spiders, and nobody notices that free-falling back through the smoky, acrid air is a small terrier with a paper hat round its neck. Where's the big present? demands the fat boy. I won the cracker. I want the big present. The dog lands at his feet. What's that? dog doing in the cracker, shouts the slim girl. The dog is used to being chased and shouted at, but this time he knows he is in trouble. So he thinks on his feet, all four, as fast as his doggy brain can, and says, Hi, I'm a magic dog, like the genie in the bottle. What genie? What Bottle, says the fat boy, suspicious that he's missing something. Who stole my genie? If you're a magic dog, yeah, right. Where are my three wishes, says the slim girl. The pale, quiet boy says nothing. He's looking at the dog. Okay, one wish each, says the dog, pointing at the children with his snouty nose. One, two, three. Your wish is my command. I want a Ferrari, <laughs> shouts the fat boy. Righto, says the dog. Give me ten minutes. The dog dives under the long tablecloth and races to the end of the ballroom. He's thinking only of escape. He skids across the polished floor, over the carpet, past the cloakroom, sees the zigzag, zigzag sign for the emergency stairs and reckons this must be for him. This is an emergency. Go, dog, go. He helter-skelters down the narrow concrete stairs and lands on his head in the underground car park. Move that Ferrari and buy 16, will ya? Shouts the valet, winging the keys through the air towards his assistant. And it must be said that for all our planning and plotting and deliberating and deciding, the moment that changes everything comes when it will, and cannot be coaxed or invoked, and should not be missed. The dog didn't miss. He stood on his hind paws and leapt. He leapt out of his scraggy, raggy tooth and nail past and caught the future as it whipped by his jaws. There he is, back up the whirl of concrete stairs, through the emergency exit, past the cloakroom, into the ballroom, just escaping concussion from hundred yo-yos, but with one bound, he's on the stage by the remains of the exploded cracker, and there are the car keys at the feet of the fat boy in the Elvis suit. Underground parking by 16. 
says the dog. <laughs> the fat boy's eyes gleam with greedy happiness. He doesn't bother to thank the dog, just grabs the keys in his fat fist and waddles off, shoving the smaller children out of his way. Me now, orders the thin girl. Me, 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 I want a real fur coat. Oh, that's unethical, replies the dog, <laughs> who's never heard the word before but finds it on the tip of his pink tongue. I want one, shrieks the girl with such force that all the glass baubles on the Christmas tree shattered to powder. Okay, says the dog, your wish is my command. He's about to turn tail, but the pale little boy has knelt down and given him a drink of water and a ham sandwich from which he's carefully removed the lettuce. The dog is grateful and hopes that whatever happens, he can bring the little boy his wish, but first there is the matter of the fur coat. He's lucky because the parents are arriving to collect their children just at the moment when gentle tinsel snow begins to fall in the bar next to the ballroom. And wouldn't a drink be nice? And what's five minutes in a lifetime, especially at Christmas? But these are the minutes some good angel has earmarked for the dog who can't believe his soft brown eyes as coat after coat is passed over to the girls working in the padded cloakroom. And if he just sits quietly and just waits, yes, it's a mink. <laughs> the girls are busy hanging up the coats in the piles and chatting about best value turkeys, so they never notice the mink silently sliding away under the counter and across the floor, dog underneath it, 20 times his size, but he's a terrier and born with the holy law of the jaw. Don't let go. <laughs> Darling, there's a coat running across the floor on its own says one very drunk man to his very sober wife. She doesn't even look around. Don't be silly, darling. And so, the sleek mink coat piloted by the rough-coated dog makes its way across the carpet into the ballroom and towards the bottom of the steps of the stage. There's a muffled woof. The girl on her mobile phone doesn't notice that her heart's desire has arrived. The pale little boy has been waiting, really a bit anxious about the magic dog, and when he sees the coat, like a rug on centipede legs, slinking across the floor, he knows the dog must be underneath and runs to pull him out. Are you all right? asks the boy. Pit hot, says the dog. Tell her, the coat's here. The girl covers her face in her hands, then starts clapping the way she's seen winners do on TV talent shows. She pulls on the coat and sashays off the stage and falls flat on her face, just as the master of ceremonies reappears with a microphone in his hand. He looks grim. He looks serious. It seems that the winning ticket, 999, has not been multiplied by three after all. It wasn't the Christmas elves. It was two felt-tip pens. The holders of ticket numbers 9 and 99 each added the required nines to their stock. 
The big present will go to the real number 999 only. The pale little boy still has his ticket in his hand. The master of ceremonies examines it through a magnifying glass. Yes, it's the one, the organ, the organ. <laughs> the organ strikes up jingle bells, but not loud enough to drown out a terrific crash in the hotel lobby. Everyone runs to the door to see a red Ferrari driven by the red-faced boy in a red suit stalled in a shatter of plate glass with a white Christmas tree jammed through the sunroof and a green doorman sprawled over the bonnet. The dog made me do it, screams the boy as the security guards drag him out. The girl in the fur coat is laughing so much she can hardly hold her phone still enough to take a snap to send to all her friends. As she holds both hands above her head, a pair of handcuffs slots securely round her wrists. That girl has stolen my coat. She's wearing it. A Russian model is unhappy. I am a friend of President Putin. <laughs> the dog gave it to me, wails the girl. Arrest the dog but the dog is nowhere to be seen. The dog has crept behind the blow-up reindeer in the ballroom, and he's not coming out. As the row in the hotel lobby reaches custard pie proportions, the master of ceremonies takes the pale, quiet boy to the gold box with the red ribbon and tells him to open it. Hesitatingly, the boy pulls the ribbon because he, he isn't used to big presents. He and his mother don't have much money. Inside the box is a mountain bike. And it's all yours, says the master of ceremonies. You want it fair and square. Left alone with the bike, the boy runs his hands over the clean cogs and smooth gears, the lightweight frame and the drop raise handlebars. It's the best bike in the world. Well, you won't be needing a wish then, says the dog invisibly from behind the blow-up reindeers. Probably for the best under the circumstances. <laughs> Another shriek comes from the hotel lobby as the Ferrari owner is re reunited with the remains of his car. He's shouting something about a golf course and Donald Trump. The boy sits on the edge of the stage, swinging his thin legs and looking at the dog's eyes, looking at him. He holds out another sandwich. The dog's brown eyes dart left, then right. Then he trots out, takes the sandwich, and sits next to the boy. <laughs> I'm not a magic dog, says the dog. I'm a stray. I got trapped in that cracker. It was so cold last night, uh, and I usually sleep under the wheelie bins in the park, but they taken them away. I was shivering. So I went for a walk to get warm, and I saw a light in the window, and I found a bench full of coloured paper and fell asleep, and, well, here I am. I came on the bus, said the boy. I live with me mum. She cleans at the hotel, so they have to invite me to the party. What were you going to ask for, said the dog, if I'd been a magic dog? The boy thought for a bit, because he was that kind of boy. And then he said, 
If I had a wish, my wish would be to take you home with me and keep you forever. What? Barked the dog, his ears going round and round like satellite dishes picking up an alien signal. Whoop! Woof! Whoop! Woof! Whoop! Woof! I'd wish for you, said the boy. My name's Tommy. What's yours? I haven't got one. Then I'll call you Magic, said Tommy. And Tommy asked his mother if he could take Magic home, and she said yes. He could keep the dog as long as he knew that a dog is forever, and not just for Christmas. That was all right, because Tommy was a forever sort of boy. Then Tommy and Magic ran round and round and helped Tommy's mum to collect the streamers and burst balloons and all the things that Christmas leaves behind. And they were happy, because they weren't leaving behind each other. At last, Tommy's mother finished work, and off they went, all three into the frosty streets to the bus stop. The dog trotted beside the boy and looked into this clear sky at the star dogs, cold and fine, and he knew that whatever you wish, you can't wish for better than love. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Town Hall Seattle's Short Stories Live series presented A Rogue's Christmas from Taproot Theater. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full event on our website, KUOW.org speakersforum. Tune in again soon. Good night and happy holidays. <laughs>